0: The unborn have no voting rights and no physical power to avert their destruction. If their interests are to be served and protected, it must be by adults in general and by government in particular. Throughout history, whenever great injustices existed, Youth movements have risen up to combat and end
1: those injustices.
2: You have organizations out there like the Centre for Bioethical Reform.
1: The Centre for Bioethical Reform. Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform.
2: Organizations
1: like the Centre for Bioethical Reform to receive public funds when they then use to attack a woman's right
2: to choose. Abortion kills all kinds of people, so then... All kinds of people can join the pro-life movement to save these babies. I was talking to a young man on the streets of Toronto.
1: I spoke with a woman named Lucy about abortion.
2: Today we are doing Choice Chain in downtown Regina.
1: By the end of the conversation, she was completely pro-life.
2: He then walked away 100% pro-life.
1: Completely pro-life.
0: We should remember that each of those babies that
2: die every day in Canada not only have the right to life that's being violated, they also have the right to artifacts.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Pro-Life, guys. Thank you so much for joining once again. My name is Peter. I'm the host of the show. And once again, I am joined by my co-host, the one, the only Cameron
1: Cote.
2: You sure are. And I am, as always, happy to be back. I'm excited to be talking with a very cool guest today. And again, this is something like I mentioned earlier when we chatted with Alyssa a few weeks back here. This is a little bit out of my depth. And so I'm really glad that we're bringing in an expert on this realm, Peter. You and I have talked about a lot of the the standard conversations that we have um, at activism, whether it's choice chain, whether it's while we're door knocking or anywhere else. I'm really glad that we're bringing in another expert on this one because politics, as I've shared before, is certainly not my bread and butter, Peter. I don't know if it's something that you drooled over when you were a kid and and followed the the paper and the ongoings of government and whatnot, but I. I've never been a political guy until I got involved in the pro-life movement, and I've learned a ton. And I still have so much more to learn about the political process, about how to make a difference. And I'm I'm looking forward to our guest today and helping us with a little bit of that background.
0: Yeah, I'm that guy who likes to like look at the the political process from afar, uh, you know, analyze it from afar, watch it from afar, and not really get my feet dirty in the whole process. I just want to say before we start off, thank you to all of you who are listening. Uh, we've been receiving some great feedback lately. We've been uh, hearing from you, and we thank you so much for that. We thank you that you enjoy this podcast and you enjoy some of the things that we have to say. For those of you who are new, we are the Pro-Life Guys. We're two guys who are passionate about ending the killing of preborn children here in Canada. And this is a podcast dedicated to giving you the tools that you need to change minds and save lives from abortion. As Kim mentioned, we have a wonderful guest with us today. We're so excited about her. Uh, Her name is Tabitha Ewart. She is the legal counsel at We Need a Law and a member of ARPA Canada's law and policy team. She is a graduate from the Peter A. Allard School of Law at the University of British Columbia and completed her articling with ARPA Canada in June of 2018 when
2: she was called to the bar and became a full lawyer. Yeah, and you know what? Sometimes lawyers can get a bad rap. No offense to any of our listeners out there. Sometimes lawyers are considered to be stuffy or or whatever. Um, the lingo is way over the heads of all of us laymen out there. Um, I have a tremendous amount of respect for Tabitha. She's also an incredibly fun person. To, to work with, to talk to. She's great. We've done some projects together in the past. We we worked together on um, a national conference that we hosted in Calgary in November 2019. She is a ton of fun. And whatever preconceived notions you have of lawyers, first of all, I can say that it's probably not true of lawyers in the pro-life movement I've had the great pleasure of working with several different incredible, incredible lawyers who are so passionate about protecting preborn children, and Tabitha's certainly one of those. And she's also super down to earth, super approachable, and very, very fun to hang out with. And and I, I'm really looking forward to this, not because we're going to get a a, a dense rendition of a legal speak that we're going to have to translate for you, but rather because she offers incredible insight in a way that's going to resonate, regardless of your background in legal conversations, in politics or political conversations. She's great.
0: Tabitha, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Oh, it's our pleasure. To start us off, could you share a little bit about who you are, how you got involved in the political arm uh, in the fight against abortion and what you do for We Need a Law as We Need a Law's legal counsel.
1: Yeah. So uh, I went to law school um, back, started in 2014. And I actually went to law school intending to be some sort of corporate lawyer, maybe a tax lawyer. That was really my idea going in. And there was actually something that happened in my first year that really just sort of shifted the trajectory of, of where I ended up going. And it was, it was one week in the spring, uh, two things happened. The first one was the Supreme Court issued the Carter decision, which is the decision that uh, legalized assisted suicide in Canada. That very same week, my law school announced that they were having they were having like a dance that spring and they were calling it the I heart Henry prom in in, uh, in memory of Henry Morgenthaler. So I was just I was shocked. I w- I didn't come in thinking these were going to be my issues. I'd grown up pro-life but wasn't particularly active. Um, And just the whole idea of dancing for abortion, dancing on on the graves of children, just really shocked me to my core. And that sort of sparked a change that would take a few years to get me to where I actually am now. But it it really just changed my focus in law school to being more about these issues of of justice and and issues of life that just really took over. So uh, when uh, the organization that I, I now work for, when they said they were looking for a lawyer, I was like, that's exactly what I wanted to do. I didn't know it when I went into law school, but it's, it's it's exactly what I wanted to do. So I was very thrilled to have the chance to do it. At We Need a Law, my my role as legal counsel it kind of involves probably like three main areas. One is uh, research and writing uh, policy, draft laws. There's lobbying, the uh, uh, meeting with politicians trying to get laws passed. And then a big part of it is grassroots, getting everyday Canadians involved in the system. I don't want the politicians to be hearing mostly from me. I want them to be hearing from Canadians. That's a big part of what I do with We Need a Law.
0: Is that, a, is that a thing that you've heard of before? These Henry Morgenthaler dances? I've never heard of them before. Is, is that common?
1: I've never heard of it before or since. Uh, I actually did go back and took a screenshot of the event just to prove that it's, it actually was there on, on Facebook. I'd never heard of it. Uh, I, I still remember talking with a classmate at the time who was not pro-life, just uh, just uh, there. And, and I, I still remember sort of like, as he put two and two together, as I explained why I was kind of upset. And he was like, oh yeah, I guess that would be upsetting. But I don't think anybody had thought about it until that point. Um, that just sort of just sort of came naturally to them that of course we would be celebrating abortion.
2: I find that super interesting. And so as I shared on, on the second episode that we did on the show, so I, I did a degree in biology at the University of Victoria. And certainly when people found out that I was pro-life during this biology degree, there was a lot of eyebrows raised. Like how could you be in biology And be pro-life like how does faith and science actually connect and thankfully biology as we talked about in episode two is very very clear that um the biology is on the side of the pro-lifers and I'm, i'm curious like with if that's kind of a snapshot of your first really eye-opening experience with um, the the pro abortion culture possibly of law school what was it like being somebody who like you said was raised pro-life that knew this was um absolutely a, a human rights violation what was it like going through the entire degree of your law degree knowing that you know maybe there's a lot of the culture within the the realm of law and lawyers um, as individuals that was really supportive of abortion in Canada.
1: Yeah, I mean, so I didn't have, uh, I did not have an adversarial experience. Uh, I did not, I did never felt persecuted for my beliefs. I never felt even ostracized for them. I just want to be clear. I actually really respect UBC where I went uh, for a lot of that. The hardship of it was just I felt invisible. Like I said, I like nobody was had even thought about the thought process that doing a dance to celebrate Dr. Henry Morgan Toller would upset anyone. And I felt like very much like nobody had a clue that someone could even be. Pro- life. So when we talk about like conversations in classrooms, they, they generally weren't about those issues. Like I, I generally like to get them to be about those issues would be uh, taking them back about five steps from where they were. Like there was just so many assumptions ingrained into the uh, into the uh, a lot of these students as well as some of the teachers. The teachers were mixed in that respect of of just assuming that, of course, if you are a woman, of course, you are a feminist. And of course, feminism means abortion. Like there was no room for even a broader concept of what feminism was. Um, that's something more I, I ended up researching after law school. So it, it wasn't like I, I felt like, like people didn't like me because I was pro-life or who I was. It was more just nobody even thought about the issue before. Um, and so we never really studied Morgenthaler for the abortion, the, the Morgenthaler case because of the abortion aspect. It was more because of some of the constitutional law that was developed. That was the only real way that it came in.
2: Gotcha that that makes a ton of sense and and that that's fantastic. I'm glad that you had a great experience at ubc i've I've done pro-life activism at UBC a bunch of times, and their security team there is one of the best, most supportive security teams that I've ever worked with. We've done the abortion awareness project on campus um numerous, numerous occasions, and they've always been great for working with us. And so um definitely share that sentiment towards how supportive and open. At the very least, the administration and the, and the kind of setup, the infrastructure at UBC really is, and so kind of moving from there. Like, what was that experience like going from law school and and knowing that a lot of your peers were probably yeah going into that corporate world and going into working for, for Arpa Canada um, and in the law. You had said that you were a little bit familiar with them beforehand. Did they reach out to you? Did you reach out to them? What was that kind of transition like in your introduction into doing applying your expertise? within the context of the pro life realm and and where we desperately need people like you advancing and, and contemplating what kind of legislation can happen in Canada?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I got connected with We Need a Law and the, uh, the parent organization, uh, the Association for Reform Political Action, ARPA Canada. I got connected with them a little earlier on in law school. So, so like I said, abortion wasn't a main topic of conversation in law school, but what was was the Trinity Western case. It was all happening while I was in law school. Um, and so through that and and through the the, the clubs on campus, I ended up getting connected with an organization called Christian Legal Fellowship, which is a fantastic organization of Christian lawyers and law students across the country. And it was actually through them that I ended up meeting some of my colleagues here at ARPA. And then, and through that... Um, just sort of realizing that I still remember thinking, "Oh, there are people who do this." Like I didn't even realize there were people who were trying to work uh, in law and politics on these issues. I, I just kind of assumed that that was just this realm that was completely separate from from you know what most Christians were doing. So I was very excited to just be like, "Oh, you can actually work towards change. We can actually work." to fix things in this country to uh, address this injustice. And I was just so excited at the idea that people were doing that and wanting to join that effort. Um, So yes, I've been here for about three years now working on that.
2: Gotcha. That, that's so cool. I'm so glad that you are working full time in the movement. Um, I've had the great pleasure of working with you on the 2019 National Conference that we uh, partnered on uh, here in Calgary together with Life Canada and right now. And so as, as we cover in, in each and every one of our podcasts, so this is all about equipping our listeners with the tools they need for having good conversations on the street. And, and I think that certainly Peter and I have had the experience and, and Tabitha, I wouldn't be surprised if you had the experience as well in, in presentations that you've given interactions that you've had with supporters or, or just the everyday Canadians. So when we're out on the street, I can't even count the number of times I've been talking to somebody and they've been all defensive, like, no, 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 we can't make abortion illegal. And CCBR, the, the group that Peter and I work with, so we're we're in the educational arm of the pro-life movement. And so when we clarify, you know what, our, our primary goal isn't necessarily to make a law, right? Like our primary goal is to change the way people think about abortion so that nobody wants abortion regardless of what the law says. And people hear that and like, oh, yeah, no, that, that's awesome. I can get on board with that. And, and so you guys don't really want a law. And we're like, no, no, no. We, we still want a law. It's just not our, our primary goal. A law is kind of a means to an end. And then people get all defensive again. And I'm curious, from your kind of experience, from your insight, why are Canadians so desperate to not have a law?
1: Oh, that's a very interesting question. Uh, I, I actually, I'll, I'll do something here. I'll quote uh, a pro-abortion activist, uh, Joyce Arthur. Um, and she said this uh, during, um, it was Cassie and Molly's law, which was uh, a pre-born victims of crime. Basically, if a pregnant woman is, uh, is killed, that there should be two separate criminal charges. And she was very opposed to this, this pro-abortion activist didn't the law didn't touch abortion at all. It would not have changed the legal status on any abortion in Canada whatsoever. But she was vehemently opposed. And she actually ended up saying to one news source that the reason she was opposed is because it might cause Canadians to think about the preborn child, or I think she said fetus at the time, and it might shock the consciences of Canadians. And I think that's just such a key element to to our work and why we're why we're pushing for these laws that that talk about preborn children talk about abortion is because Uh, it it isn't sustainable what we're doing. The cognitive dissonance we have on the subject, the fact that we claim to be a country that celebrates human rights and yet deny the fundamental right to life to the most vulnerable among us, it's not sustainable. And the more that you reveal that injustice to Canadians, whether it's through conversations, whether it's showing the victims of abortion or whether it's showing the injustice of what we're doing through law, the more you're going to shock the consciences of Canadians. And, 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 And so I think there's so many in the program Abortion movement who know that that if they give an inch that we're going to take a mile that they're that that any sort of ins- any sort of change on that in our legal setting is going to shock the consciences of Canadians and wake them up to this injustice that's happening.
0: Yeah, we we've seen that before as well. I mean, we see that on the streets. We see that when we talk to people about abortion victim photography. But a few episodes ago, we we had a conversation about Stephen Woodsworth motion. Um, you know, just on. Having a conversation about who the primordial are, looking at the definition, and that was even a conversation that politicians didn't want to have. And as we talked about uh, in that episode, it was a conversation they didn't want to have because there were certain repercussions that would follow that conversation if the science uh, and if the the conversation found that human life does, in fact begin at fertilization, which which, as we talked about in episode two, 96 percent of biologists who are part of a certain study, that's what they agree with, that human life does begin at fertilization.
2: One quick thing that I, I try to catch myself on. So the three of us we're, were in depth in the pro-life movement. We know where the abortion laws are in Canada. And yet for some of our viewers and, and something that we find time and time again, we're having conversations not only on street corners, but we give presentations in churches. We give presentations for pro-life organizations across Canada. And sometimes those people that we're speaking to don't even know where we're at as a nation. And, and could you just give us like the, the Coles notes of where we're at in Canada? Are we like leading nationally? Are we trying to like bury the, bury the hatchet and finish off abortion in Canada? Are we right at the beginning? Where are we at legally in Canada with regards to abortion?
1: Yeah. Yeah. The strange state of affairs here in Canada, Canada has no abortion law. And what I mean by that, because the number one response, just like you said, number one response I get from pro-life, pro-choice, doesn't matter, all ages, is that's not true. People don't believe it. Um, There was even, there was a recent poll, a 2020 poll uh, that came out that said, uh, you know, 70% of Canadians are happy with Canada's policy on abortion. And that same poll showed that 75% of Canadians thought that late term abortion should be illegal. And 84% of Canadians thought sex-selective abortion should be illegal. That disconnect between those who are satisfied and those who think these things should be illegal really comes from that They just don't realize Canada has nothing. Um, There was a a woman in Montreal who had an abortion at 35 weeks. There were no legal repercussions for that. Even though there was was outrage from from some people, there was actually the Quebec Minister of Health was very supportive of her getting that abortion. So it doesn't matter how late term, we also know that sex selective abortions do happen here in Canada. So even though you're targeting a pre-born child just because she's a girl, that is legal here in Canada. Um, And there's no law that is going to prevent that from happening. Um, and just to make it abundantly clear about where Canada sits on the world stage, we're the only democratic country in the world with no abortion law. vast majority of Western European countries have about a 12-week gestational limit, 12 weeks. We're at 40, they're at 12. Um, and they also require things like a waiting period and counseling to support a woman going through that.
0: Yeah, that's awful. I-, I just read an article by our colleague Jonathan Van Maren where he Outlined a story where someone wanted to have an abortion because they didn't want to ruin their bikini body, um, but wanted to have a, a, a nice bikini body for the summer. And so what you're saying is, uh, and Cam, like you said, this is something we talk about all the time, but really just to confirm, uh, we, in Canada, abortion is legal for any reason or for no reason at all. That's what you're saying, right, Tabitha? Mm-hmm.
1: That's right. Yeah, some individual policy uh, hospitals will have policies that may not allow late term abortions, just because that's one of the things that often comes up. Those thing those policies are not law, um, and they often have exceptions. Like I know a, a friend of mine, her child was diagnosed with Down syndrome uh, when she was about four months pregnant, and her doctor told her he could get her an abortion right up to nine months. He said at his hospital it would go to an ethics board, but the ethics board always ruled in favor of abortion when it came to Down syndrome. So when we say Canada has no abortion law, that's what we mean is that those situations happen here in Canada.
2: And and one thing that I, I find super interesting, and so we, we often say that on the street, and we have people say, oh, well, late-term abortions never happen. Well, So we've got a couple of signs that show... I'm a, a preborn child at 24 weeks, I believe, um, who's been killed by abortion. People will say like, that never happens in Canada, and, and we certainly have a go-to response. And maybe I'll share that in a little bit. But when when people say that to you, when when they say, okay, well, fine, yeah, it's legal through all nine months of pregnancy. But yeah, there's only it never happens. Maybe you've got one case that you can point to or that sort of thing. What is your go-to response when people challenge, okay, it's legal through all nine months of pregnancy, but it doesn't happen through all nine months of pregnancy? Do you really try to call them out on that point?
1: Uh, I mean, I I generally actually tend to point to the specific cases where it does happen because uh, we don't know. Statistics in Canada around abortion are extremely lacking. There is an official Canada number, but it's known to be very... Very inaccurate as it doesn't report a lot of clinic data. It's very inconsistent in terms of what it does. Uh, Pat Maloney does a lot of great work revealing a lot of those statistics. So we don't know how many happen. We do know uh, from the ones that the hospitals do report that there are late term abortions that do happen. And we don't know why they happen. Um, anecdotally, uh, I can tell you that I've known that abortions have happened uh, late term for no, no apparent reason for why the abortion was delayed that long or why she chose it at that point. Like it wasn't like uh, her own health was at risk or her child's health. Um, but then a lot of them happen, uh, and this is the more uh, common. Uh, reason given again we don't know the reasons but the common reason given is because of disability is because of genetic conditions so things like down syndrome where it, it said that oh your child will have a low quality of life which just enables this ableist perspective on on what life is like and just encourages people to have you know negative stereotypes about what it means to live with down syndrome uh so a lot of them happen because of that and then just the other thing is um if a sex-selective sex abortion is going to happen, it's often going to be later term as well, because you often don't find out the sex of the child till uh, 18-ish weeks. Um, so, so those are also likely to be late term as well. So uh, maybe they're not common, but they do happen. And the question as a society is, do we think that they should be legal to happen? Or do we think that there is at least an area um, in which the parliament's justified in prescribing conditions?
2: Yeah, I think that's bang on. And I, I think not only is it bonkers that, that it's legal through all nine months of pregnancy. So I, I'm on the Abortion Rights Coalition of Canada website right now looking at what they're reporting as their abortion statistics. And so that, that, I'm not trying to pull this from like We weareprolifecanada.ca or anything like this. Like this is from the Abortion Rights Coalition of Canada. And they're showing so 2018, they have a total of 85,195 abortions reported. Whether that's accurate or not, like you said, um, there's been a lot of criticism as to the accuracy of any kind of abortion numbers. And of those 85,000, just under 20,000 of them have an associated gestational age for the child. And so like, they didn't even bother reporting any information regarding the gestational age for 60,000 of these kids. But of those 20,000, 659 were older than 21 weeks. Right. And and so, like you said, we have no idea why those children um, individually were aborted. We have no idea the rationale behind those mothers and fathers decisions, that sort of thing. And obviously, this is not the highest majority. This this isn't proportionally where the majority of abortions are happening. But I think that the listeners need to know and people within your sphere of influence, whoever is listening, need to know that this isn't uncommon. Right. That that we only know ages for Maybe a quarter of the babies, and of those seven hundred, almost over twenty-one weeks. And and so I I just say those statistics because we're we're often told very flippantly on the street of like oh it, it happens like one in a million kind of times. No, it, it happened six hundred and fifty-nine times out of a reported nineteen thousand four hundred and forty-four. Not a majority, but certainly a relevant number that we have to consider as as Canadians that that this is something that really needs to be addressed. Totally.
0: Yeah. So when we're on the streets, we often hear, so we're having these conversations uh, as an organization, we are an educational organization, but the political conversations certainly come up because there are implications to our worldview. But one of the, the things that people often say to us is what, well, like, that's, that's your morality. That's what you believe. Uh, why should we be legislating your morality? Is that something you've heard before, uh, Tabitha? And how would you respond to that?
1: Yeah, no, it's definitely something people say. It's it's a it's a strange thing. I know it's a common thing to say, but it's still a strange thing when my eyes, my ears hear it. Um, Because any law is is morality. I mean, the the very fact that you know our criminal code uh, makes sexual assault illegal is morality. It's it's a statement. It's a judgment call on the rightness or the wrongness of an action. Um, So it's it's really strange to be like, oh, this one's morality, but somehow. That one's not. So what, are we neutral on the morality of sexual assault? Or do we think that it is a seriously immoral act that we need to condemn with the criminal code? So when it comes to abortion, you just have to, you have to look at the actual act and and say, should this be illegal or should it not? You know, we're talking about a human life, uh, losing their life uh, in the most vulnerable state. Is this moral or is it immoral? It's not a question of whether you are going to legislate morality or you're not. It's whose morality are you going to be legislating?
2: Mm -hmm. And and a follow up question on that, that we hear time and again, obviously, the pro life movement is considered to be a monolith of of Christians who are trying to impose Christian doctrine, like like Peter said, and and obviously, we know that's not true. We know that there's a ton of different people from a ton of different backgrounds who support the pro life worldview. And how in like a whatever, a a sentence or a couple of sentences, what is your go-to to try to show people that this is not Christian morality per se, but rather something that everybody can and should get on board with?
1: Yeah, I mean, I often go straight to the human rights argument. It's it's something that I tend to work a lot into my work as well. Is like, as Canada, we we've said that we we have a high commitment to human rights. I mean, it's built into our charter that everyone should have the right to life, uh, security of the person, and, and and yet we're denying it to the most vulnerable of our midst. I mean, it's another commitment that Canada has is is to promoting those who are who are minorities, those who who maybe don't have a strong position in our society. Why would we not want to be protecting them? Them if they are people just like me and you. So that, that's generally where I'll go straight to when I'm talking about you know, why this is. is it's because it's the same thing. It's a human rights violation. Uh, I believe in human rights for all human beings. And, and I believe that the law has a duty to promote that, uh, especially for the most vulnerable in our midst.
2: Boom. Totally. <laughs> um, and, and so I, I think that's bang on. And, and one question that kind of relates to that, that, that maybe is a niche one, that may, maybe this isn't the most common question that comes up frequently, but certainly being on the quote unquote right wing of politics and the right wing of, of conservatism and all that kind of stuff, whether in Canada or whether in America, one thing that I've heard time and time again from whether they're my hipster friends or friends that are just trying to get a little bit more nuanced into politics and getting super into this libertarian push, Um, this isn't a knock on libertarianism necessarily, but sometimes people try to extend libertarianism to saying, well, Cam, we already have too much legislation. We already have too much restriction on our rights and our abilities. Yes, this is wrong, but no, it shouldn't be legislated. What do you say to somebody And I'm sure that it relates very closely to what you just said there. But for somebody who is maybe they're they're already pro-life, maybe they're already Christian worldview, but they're really on this libertarian bandwagon of no more legislation. We're never going to put another pen to paper for more legislation in our country. What do you say to somebody
1: like that? Yeah, I, I, so I, I usually would because that's actually a more common question than you than when you think and, and I usually first want to just sort of establish like where they're coming at when they ask that. So I, I will usually uh, ask a question that maybe seems like it comes out of left field, but I'll usually ask them if they're against seatbelt laws as well. Like, are you a true libertarian who is truly against all government legislation that, you know, is not preventing violence to others? Like, so, so just just figure out because there are people who are and then I would have a very different conversation. But but for the most part, they're not, and for the most part, it's like no, no, that's different, um, and, and and so then we can work from there. But then going back to more the substance of your question, you have like you know why should the government be involved? Well, we've already talked about the preborn child, the fact that you know their rights are are definitely at stake, and and I would just want to add that uh, another and actually this is a big motivation for why I got into this work was actually the women, um, because I don't think leaving this question unanswered as it is in Canadian society. I, I don't think that's good for women because what it says is we have this complex, uh, you know, uh, to borrow the Frederica Matthew Green's quote, you know, no woman wants an abortion like she wants an ice cream cone or a Porsche. She wants an abortion like an animal caught in a trap wants to gnaw off its own leg. So we're telling a woman, you're reaching this choice, this, this, this choice that can have ramifications physically, mentally. There's the ethical implications. We're saying, yeah, this one's on you. We've decided to step out on this question, this question that can just drastically change your life and have just just very strong ramifications for her. Uh, I think that's completely unfair. Uh, I think it's completely unfair to women who are told, do this whatever you want, just don't talk to us about it. I think as Canadians, we owe women like myself, like all the women across Canada, we owe women the conversation about the ethical nature of abortion. We owe women a conversation about the humanity of her preborn child and the relational bond she has as her mother. Um, and I think Parliament's inaction since 1988 on this question that has left us with no abortion law does a huge disservice to women.
0: Yeah, so that sounds great. And I'd like to to push back just a little bit. For those of you who know the history of uh, you know, the, the abortion conversation in Canada, one of the the narratives that was pushed was that when there was laws uh, restricting abortion, women were getting back alley abortions. They were uh, getting injured with back alley abortions. They were dying because of these back alley abortions. But now you as a woman are working towards um, drafting and, and proposing legislation that would restrict abortion here in Canada. So like do you think that the abortion rate will actually decrease or do you or, or will mothers just turn to back alley abortions once again uh, and it'll just make things unsafe for women once again?
1: Yeah, I mean, 100 percent, the abortion rate will decrease if it if it is uh, if it is made illegal. There, there's there's um, it, it you know, there might be some women uh, who still want to have abortions uh, strong enough that they go to the to the back alley or to the illegal abortion, that sort of idea. Um But like even simple as uh, the Hyde Amendment in the United States, which makes it so no public funding can go to abortion. Uh, I was just reading a pro-abortion source that that said that even that has caused um, about a quarter of low-income women to, to give birth instead of have an abortion. So, the laws matter. The way the government acts, like currently in Canada, it's completely funded by the government, with a, a small exception in New Brunswick. But, like, the way that we're facilitating it right now is, is doing nothing to decrease the abortion rate. So, laws completely matter um, in that respect. In terms of just the, the illegal abortion and, the, and that whole sort of side of the argument that does often come out, just like a few points in response, because I think it's important to understand uh, how to answer that question. Um, so, number one, the reports of illegal abortions prior to uh, prior to Morgenthaler, prior to decriminalization of abortion, are, are grossly overestimated. It just they were not as high as a lot of the reports. There's lots of good information out there on that. Um, the next thing is just to remember that uh, you know if we're talking about illegal, unsafe abortions. Well, there's abortion is never safe. For the preborn child, and and that's that's not going to change, whether it happens legally or illegally. It's always an unsafe abortion for one of the parties. Uh, and then just to just to remind people, the pro life movement's not going away. If we get you know if we get abortion completely illegal tomorrow, I'm not packing up and going home. I still have a ton of work. I mean, you guys have a ton of work on the educational side. The Pregnancy Resource Center has a ton of work on their side. Uh, on the legal side, there's there's going after doctors who are potentially doing unsafe abortions, which is highly concerning. There There's so much more to be done to to make sure that we're promoting life. Uh, so I think that's important to remember when that comes up.
2: Yeah, that that makes a ton of sense. And and I think that really helping people understand that how closely we work together, and, and I think you hit the nail on the head right there, in that, that what you finished that with, of how closely the educational and the legal dovetail together and how we don't want those back alley abortions happening either. It's not that we're trying to push people back to the back alleys. We don't want anybody having an abortion. And education is instrumental in that, but unfortunately, there's so many in Canada that rely on the law as their moral compass and so laws are absolutely essential when it comes to um really decreasing the abortion rate in Canada. I think that we 've seen that in other countries. I think that we're seeing that like you said in the states, for how instrumental they are and with that, probably the the number one concern that comes up for me. Uh, not, not that I have this concern, but when I'm talking to people, rather when I'm talking to people about abortion in Canada, when we start wading into legal um, context and component that goes along with it, one of the greatest fears that is articulated to me on the street, and Peter, I'm sure you have the same experience, is people wondering, are we trying to throw women in prison? is our goal to try to criminalize it to the point where we're throwing women in prison and not just the women who are having abortions now but what about people who have had abortions years ago decades ago are we going to go retroactively and just clog up our legal system and fill our prisons with um post-abortive women or like what what is our our thought on that and and I know that That probably comes up for you as well, because people may have a very narrow look at what a law may entail. And so what's kind of your approach when you get hit with that one of, oh, Tabitha, I'm sure you desperately just want all of these women to end up in prison and all this kind of stuff and all these accusations. Where where do you go to navigate that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, just to start, uh, the way criminal law works, you would never pass a law and then retroactively apply that. That's just a basic principle of law. That's just never going to happen. Um, so, so there's definitely no concern on, on that side of it. Uh, I don't know anyone. I mean, I don't know anyone in the pro life movement who wants to criminalize women now. Uh, I I don't know of any serious policy proposal that. Puts any of the penalties on women seeking abortions. It's all done through the medical professional side. So the the idea being, you have a doctor there. He's in a position of somewhat of a of a power, um, if you want to call it, a power imbalance. Of you have a woman, you know, potentially, you know, again, that Frederica Matthew Green, you know, potentially feeling like an animal caught in a trap. And so you're putting the pressure on on the person who's independent, who has professional responsibilities to make sure that he's not doing something, he or she's not doing something illegal rather than the woman on the desperate situation. So like I said, I don't know of any serious policy proposal that that does it any other way. Um, that's that's the generally accepted uh, way in the pro-life movement. Uh, nobody wants to criminalize women. I mean, I, I just wanna like, from my mind, whenever I get asked that, I, I always think of probably a little bit more of a philosophical point, but. Just, you know, if, if, if we do sort of see the movement that we want to see as a pro-life movement, we start to see our culture wake up to what abortion is, this, this uh, gross injustice. Uh, I think we are going to have to have a serious conversation about, about how we, we need to reach out to post-abortive women still. This whole idea of, of forgiveness and, and the whole idea of, of needing to heal from, from some of the past that we've had, I think is going to be a very important topic for the pro-life movement.
0: Yeah. So the, the question that really comes to me is where do we go from here? I, I mean, we have not had a law in Canada restricting abortion for over 30 years when uh, in 1988, we um, saw the R.V. Morgenthaler case, which stated that the abortion provision in the criminal code was unconstitutional and that it violated women's rights uh, under the, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So to, to change gears a little bit, What sort of legislation should we be working towards? What sort of legislation are you working on uh, with your work at We Need a Law, Um, both on on a provincial and federal level? Where can we go from here?
1: Yeah, I just, I just want to make a quick clarification on what Morgenthaler actually decided um, because uh, it, it didn't really center around women's rights um, under the Charter. It actually, I mean, the whole case was about Morgenthaler. Uh, Dr. Henry Morgenthaler was performing illegal abortions. He was charged under the criminal code and it was his constitutional rights that the courts actually considered. So it's a very complex decision. It's five different written reasons uh, by seven different judges. Uh, and they generally didn't really talk about women, a whole lot. There was some concern about doctors who would potentially face jail time. Uh, the one justice, Justice Bertha Wilson, who, who spent the most time talking about a woman, even she wasn't, it wasn't like a full on right to abortion. So I just want to clarify that that's what that decision decided. So we, we're, we're very cautious not to, to you know, misstate the law, is, is uh, where I go with that. But yeah, so we're going forwards. Uh, if we're talking about legislation, I mean, here in Canada right now, we actually have a private member's bill that would make sex selective abortion illegal. It's uh, Bill C 233, was put forward by MP Kathy Wagenthal. It's a very exciting. A movement for the pro-life movement. Uh, it's it's a very exciting development. Uh, it's the first bill that would um, restrict abortion that's even been brought forward in Parliament for over fifteen years. Uh, so it's a very exciting sort of development that we can at least talk about one reason as a society that we think you shouldn't have an abortion. So. Um, we really want to support that. That's going to take a lot of Canadians getting involved. Because again, if if politicians are just hearing from me, that that doesn't give a lot of weight to our arguments. What politicians need to do is they need to be hearing from the constituents in their own ridings. So whatever riding you're in, I don't care if uh, if your MP is pro-life or not. They need to be hearing. From you on this subject, so we we're really encouraging you to write to your MP, to phone your MP. We also have postcards that you can send to your MP. Anything to get them to know that this is something that their constituents care about.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's really good. So we have that that proposed legislation, which is exciting uh, on sex selective abortion. I, I know one of the critiques that we face at times in the pro life movement is that we're not going far enough. We're not trying to save as many babies as possible, which is all of them. And the laws that we are trying to propose are not good laws because of that. I'm just wondering, you know, why wouldn't we settle for anything other than an all out ban? Is there is there is there a reason that we're targeting a sex selective abortion instead of saying to to politicians propose this legislation that would completely ban abortion outright throughout all of Canada
1: this afternoon? Yeah, Uh, it's a it's an oft stated quote in the politics is that, you know, politics is the the art of the possible. Uh, And that's really going to come into a lot of this, like just let's get some realism into this debate. So in 1988, the Supreme Court issues their Morgenthaler decision that strikes down their old law, completely expecting that Parliament will pass a new law. Uh, And then in 1991, uh, under the Mulroney government, they put forward an abortion bill. It was a very imperfect law, uh, but it would have been a law. And it actually ended up getting defeated in the Senate on a tie vote. And it was defeated because the pro-life senators voted against it alongside the pro-choice senators. So it was actually the pro-life. And and the pro-life movement, I I don't necessarily think badly on them at the time. They thought they could do better. They thought they could have a better law. But the reality is that since they didn't do anything, that, that left us in a situation where we have no law whatsoever. Again, this is the first bill in over 15 years that restricts abortion in any sense in Parliament. That's a huge step forward uh, we need the pro-life movement being excited about it being on fire for supporting it making sure that you know they're talking to their neighbors that they're talking to their representatives about it um, because this is that momentum that we need to start building again that uh, that Joyce Arthur quote that I love is that you know to shock the consciences of Canadians we need to be supporting what is possible um, I I can't bring forward any legislation in Parliament you have to be a member of Parliament to do that so the way that you start making changes Changes is by working with what's there, working with what the will that the members of parliament have um, and and building on that to, to get more momentum, to to keep trying to protect more and more pre-born children.
2: And that's something that I, I think is consistent throughout history, right? Like I, I'm not as big of a, a history buff as others at CSPR possibly. I'm sure that Jonathan could, could spend an entire afternoon talking about all the cases in which this has happened. And I'm sure you could probably share a few more cases as well. But I, I think often of... Uh, a simple case or a a case as simple and as hopefully accessible as William Wilberforce and the abolition of the slave trade in Britain. Obviously, their goal was to abolish slavery in its entirety, right? But they knew that um, they were already getting laughed out of Parliament by talking about ending the slave trade, let alone ending slavery itself. And so they bit off what they could accomplish to bring about what they really wanted to accomplish in the end. And it took a long time, obviously, but they achieved it achieved it within William Wilberforce's lifetime and they started with stuff as simple as 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 seemingly benign as flying neutral flags and this kind of stuff you it's fairly i don't know how historically accurately documented in the movie amazing graves but um Eric Metaxas has a book on Wilberforce there's a great book by Adam child called bury the chains that, that goes through this and and I'm sure that's something that you guys talk about at the We Need a Law um, campaign, right, that, that this is something that has worked historically in bringing about an end to injustice. Are, are there examples that you guys look to frequently for um, guidance or even just motivation that this is the path that, that we should be pursuing?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's examples uh, just closer to home and closer to our time, just here in Canada. If you if you track the you know the LGBTQ uh, progression in law, it didn't happen one day. Uh, it started with things like you know allowing same sex common law relationships, allowing same sex couples to adopt, um, allowing uh, same sex couples to access different benefits. To you know the you know the legalization of gay marriage in, in 2004. To you know. Add Adding sexual orientation to human rights codes. It's, it's a very gradual uh, progression, um, and, and, and that gradual progression allows the majority of Canadians to sort of adjust one step at a time. We, you know, we call it the Overton Window, right? The idea that an, an idea moves along a scale of not acceptable to, okay, somewhat acceptable to, to very acceptable to, of course, this is obvious, right? and and so figuring out you know at, you know at the beginning back in the 1980s the the idea of of um uh, you know, of gay marriage being a reality was probably totally unacceptable at the time. So they didn't start there. They started with, well, but we can live together. We can, you know, we can have kids together. And they moved slowly along the spectrum. It's the same thing that we want to do with, with abortion law. Again, the majority of Canadians are are not hardcore pro-life. The majority of Canadians, um, you know, I, I, I'd have to look at the poll, but the majority of Canadians don't think abortion should be legal in the first trimester. But going back to that poll I referenced earlier, 75% think it should be legal in the third trimester. That's the totally acceptable uh, idea. So if we start there and we start moving them along that spectrum with these other ideas, okay, well, maybe you think abortion should be generally legal, but Do you think a preborn child should be aborted just because she's a girl? Don't you think that's a wrong reason to have an abortion? And you start shaping that conversation, moving that idea of human rights for all human beings down that that spectrum of the Overton window to being, you know, hopefully, you know, Lord willing, one day to that. This is a totally obvious. Of course, we should be protecting every single one.
0: And you could see that as something that. You know, most like you said, most Canadians would agree with even politicians would agree with the idea that um, you know women in our society, uh, girls in our society, should you know live in an environment that's free from discrimination based on their sex, based on the fact that they are a woman. So, can we like do we do we expect politicians in our House of Commons to support Kathy Wagentau's bill um, because it restricts uh, discrimination, it restricts abortion based on The sex of the child?
1: I mean I I think these MPs need to be hearing from their constituents. I don't I don't want to denigrate our politicians by any sense. There's there's many really great ones, but a lot of their decisions are not ideological based. They're they're based on political incentives. And so the question is, is it is it is it something that's going to win them votes or is this something that's going to lose them votes? I mean, that may not be their sole motivation, but that's definitely going to be in their thinking. So um, whether liberal MPs are going to support it, I mean, Justin Trudeau is on record saying, that he's he is he would not support something uh, like this. But uh, whether there are others who would, I, I really think that the pressure needs to come on from Canadians. Do Canadians support it, and are they invested enough to actually interact with their MP on this issue?
0: Yeah, for sure, and that's huge. That's something that you have said several times throughout this episode. Getting in contact with your MP, getting in contact with your representatives, and sharing with them your position. Are there any other ways uh, for people who are listening? Are there any other ways for people to get involved in this political process? I mean, we we want them to to contact the MPs. Um, is there anything else they can do uh, to get involved in this conversation?
1: Yeah. So specifically on this bill, I recommend people go to defendgirls.com. We have actually a number of action items specifically on the select selective abortion issue. Uh, one of the things we're trying to do right now is we're trying to host um so we've, in the past, we've hosted uh, flag displays with blue and pink flags to represent the number of abortions that happen every year here in Canada. We started doing pink-only flag displays to, to highlight the sex-selective abortions that are happening here in Canada. And, and one of the advantages of this, if you're, you're, you're you know setting up a, a sobering memorial to the victims of abortion, which in itself is a powerful thing. Um, but another thing is, is if you're doing it in a public place, you're able to have conversations with people going by. If you've ever been in a flag display they're They're very visually stunning it, it, they really catch people's attention and everybody wants to know why and and what uh, and that's a great time to have those conversations about sex selective abortion again eighty four percent of Canadians support a law against sex selection, but how many even know that there's a private member's bill right now? How many even know that they need to be supporting it actively uh it's a great way to get people aware of the issue and get people involved there's also petitions um there's the official House of Commons petition. You want to make sure you're signing that one because every time uh, Kathy Wagenthal gets 25 signatures, she's actually able to get up in the House of Commons and speak about this issue. So get more notoriety to it. So it's an important thing to do is to to print the hard copy of the petition and, and sign it and send it to MP Wagenthal. Uh, so there's, there's lots of different... If you go to defendgirls.com, you can see sort of all the different ways that you can get involved in this.
0: And we can find the petition on that website. Say it one more time
1: defendgirls.com
2: beautiful and as we start to to wrap up here one thing that i i think that as peter said and as you've said on numerous occasions the importance of talking to members of parliament i speaking from personal experience for the longest time i was super intimidated to go and speak to my member of parliament i remember growing up in machoson british columbia my member of parliament was dr keith martin um liberal mp for a long time and i was super intimidated by this idea of marching into a member of parliament's office thinking that this guy was going to wipe the floor with me with with legal and political knowledge and all this kind of stuff. And it was super intimidating to line up a, a conversation. So I, I looked for what I considered easier options. And, and like you said, very important options for signing petitions and that sort of thing. But for, for our audience who might feel a little bit intimidated about going and talking to their politician. This Can can you offer either some some words of comfort or, or some words of advice in how to make that a productive conversation so that they don't get trapped in political lingo or anything like that that's going to make them think twice about where they're standing or get them confused as to where they're at or, or somehow excuse their member of parliament? What kind of advice would you give to somebody who isn't, necessarily on the cutting edge of political insight but wants to make that difference by having that meeting.
1: One of the things I like to remind people, uh, we're pro-life. We believe that every human life is, is valuable, is distinct, has worth and dignity. That applies to pre-born children and that also applies to politicians. Uh, believe it or not, they are human beings just like me and you. Not only does that mean we can't end their lives through abortion, it also means that they're relational creatures just like me and you, that they're, they're human just like me and you. They have the same insecurities weaknesses they you know they have the whole human experience that we do and so one of the things with that is is they deserve to hear the truth they deserve to hear the reality of, of what's going on in their country and what's actually important to their constituents um, so so you're actually doing them a favor even if they don't accept it you're doing them a favor by just presenting that topic and then just leading off of that the the saying that we often use is relationship first, policy second chances are if you if you just phone your mp and and you just you know all you do is is Talk, you know, about how horrible abortion is. That that could every word you could say could be true, and it could not be a very productive conversation. The reality is, you want to start building a relationship with them. You want to ask them how they're doing. You want to, you know, tell them you support what you support about what they do. You want to sort of develop something so that you know you're not just having a one-off conversation, but something that you're actually able to go back to continually. So, and that could be something through the phone call. I also have a friend in the pro-life movement who she took us stack of postcards, and she says she sends one to her MP every month with encouraging message. Uh, They're pro-life postcards that say Canada has no abortion law on them, and just reminding her MP, that every month he, he hears from her that she cares about him, that she's thinking about him, and that she wants him to do something about this injustice here in Canada. So uh, just remembering that it's, it's not just about speaking truth. It is also about developing a relationship, being in it for the long term, um, not just thinking you're going to go in and change their mind can be a really important part of that. Otherwise, it kind of depends on on where your MP is on this issue. Uh, There is on our website, we need a law.ca. We have lots of tips for how to have conversations and how to have meetings. It's a lot easier than you think. And, And just doing it once, I swear, if you just do it once, you will get more comfortable. It'll be easier to think about doing it more after that. But taking that first step, uh, do reach out to us. We're always happy to help people get there. That's a big part of what we do is getting you involved in that. And it's, it's just such an important part of actually proceeding forward with this movement.
0: Tabitha, what's the best way that we can reach out to you?
1: Yeah. So uh, my email address is tabitha at we need a dot C.A. Feel free to email me if you want. Uh, if you want to go through our website as well, uh, info at we need a will take you to our administrator. Um, you know, if you're interested in doing a flag display, anything like that, she would love to help you with that. Um, yeah. And I'm always happy to talk about this stuff.
0: Perfect. That's awesome. Tabitha, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us this episode. It was an absolute pleasure to have you on.
1: Oh, it's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. This was this was a great conversation.
0: Yeah, we agree. It certainly is our pleasure. That is Tabitha Ewart from We Need a Law. Thank you so much for joining to each and every one of you who made it this far. We're so thankful that you did. We are the Pro-Life Guys. Where can you find us? You can find us at ProLifeGuys.com. You can find us on all your social media platforms. Uh, That's not true. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube, and those are the only social media platforms. Although you can find us on all of your favorite platforms, podcast platforms if you're listening to this from the website or perhaps from youtube check us out the pro-life guys on your favorite podcast platform cam do you have anything
2: to say to close us off my friend As always, if there's a platform that we're not on, if you are that ultra hipster that is the only person listening on some app that you developed in your mother's basement, please let us know. We'll get on that app as well because we want to make it convenient and easy for you. We also want to encourage you to get active and get involved, right? This entire show is dedicated towards giving you the tools that you need to have good conversations, tap of the challenge to you, to get involved, grassroots politics, have a conversation with your member of parliament. Not only that, These conversation skills help when you're doing activism, when you're doing pro-life outreach, we want to encourage you to consider connecting with one of our teams, whether affiliated with our offices or a community group in your hometown, get involved. These conversation skills are only worthwhile if you're using them for conversations. You can learn as much as you want, but until you start having conversations, um, changes can be slow. We need you. We need you to be active and engaged and um, interacting with those within your sphere of influence, whether your friends and family members or whether those in your community that you can can chat with during one of CSPR's Choice Chain events, door knocking. If you want to start a pro-life club in your community, if you're living in a community and there isn't anything set up yet, contact us at our website, prolifeguys.com. Uh, We will give you all the tools and training that you need to be able to start up an effective, engaging pro-life outreach team in your community so that together we can make abortion unthinkable in Canada. And if you want to contact us for no reason other than just to say
0: hello and that you're listening to the podcast, go ahead, do it. We'd love to hear from you. My name is Peter. Once again, I'm with my co-host, Cameron Cote. We are the Pro-Life Guys. Thank you for listening. Go get active, everyone.